The process of constructing this series on slavery has forced me to do a lot of reflection on my chosen subject field of history and the choices that I have made previously as a teacher. As I complete my preparation of this massive unit on the concept and institution of slavery, it becomes clear that I am only at the beginning of my excursion towards understanding this part of our historic legacy. But as Lao Tzu reminds us, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. The events of 2020 have made clear that many of us around the world stopped and patted ourselves on the back for not being racist themselves and believed that the civilized world had arrived at the destination of a post-racial society. Anyone who studies history believes that understanding the past is key to understanding the present and making successful predictions for the future. But what if our understanding of the past is incomplete? In the 1700s, Hegel, the famous German philosopher, dismissed the continent that mankind likely originated from, proclaiming that Africa was simply not worth studying. He believed it was the land of our childhood which exhibits man in its original and wild, untamed state. For a philosopher whose work revolved around humanity's history, this dismissal of Africa is a damning shortcoming. Heigl lived amid the transatlantic slave trade, an era whose consequences are still being revealed today. Heigl's view of the Africans as savages was common among his contemporary Europeans, but widespread acceptance of an idea doesn't make it right. His outright dismissal was echoed in the 1960s by Hugh Trevor Roper, a prestigious British scholar who claimed that, quote, Africa had no history of its own, and whatever history it had is that of Europeans in Africa. The rest is darkness. Roper wrote this during the backdrop of the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. His statement is not ancient history with its outdated preconceptions. Roper's home nation ended slavery in 1833, 130 years before he made himself part of the story with his ignorant statement. The year that he made his pronouncement included Englishman Paul Stevenson mimicking Rosa Parks and leading a boycott against an openly racist public bus company. Stevenson's boycott concluded successfully on the same day that Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial. The black and white images of the 1960s civil rights movement have a way of misleading today's students into thinking that these events were considerably further in the past than they are. This, in turn, further tricks us into believing that these problems were solved by previous generations. 1963 was only 57 years ago. High schoolers that learned about the civil rights movement as a current event are now only reaching their mid-70s. Although social studies was just being included in the curriculum of American schools, the study of world history and therefore our understanding of the present that we live in has changed little. That makes us complicit in making Heigl and Roper's words reality. I will use my own experience with world history to illustrate my point. I enjoy African history, yet I have very little expertise with the subject. This is likely because of the curriculum that I was taught in the 1980s and 1990s. My teachers for the most part ignored the African continent, opting instead for a focus on European history. Most of the information about Africa that I was introduced to came in the form of physical and cultural geography. Some of this historical exclusion is justified by a focus on systems of writing. African societies did not customarily write down their history, or at least that's the common refrain. Instead, Africans focused on the practice of Gurwis, a dedicated social class of storytellers who were responsible for passing down the history of the civilization through stories. These performers were renowned for their skill at spinning a tale and making history come alive in a way that few historical tombs can. For all their skill, however, historians view oral history with a healthy dose of skepticism. Stories can change with each telling, they often involve mythological elements as metaphors, and their facts are not permanent in the way that the written words are. This is a lazy argument for the exclusion of African history in our base curriculum, though. 
Egyptian hieroglyphics were not translated until Napoleon Bonaparte's forces invaded Egypt and discovered the Rosetta Stone. I find it hard to believe that scholars dismissed Egyptian history until the 1800s because we could not translate their writing system. For much of their time spent pillaging, the Mongols were an illiterate society. We do not write off the time before Genghis Khan's uniting of the Mongol kingdoms just because that history was passed down orally. Writing and primary documents are just one tool that historians use for understanding the past. In my own teaching, I have offered what I refer to as snapshot units of African history between full units of European history. For instance, my students remain for weeks on ancient Greece and Rome before receiving some basic information on Mali, Ghana, and Great Zimbabwe. We then return to Europe in time for the Middle Ages to begin. I have always justified this teaching by reminding myself that there is simply too much to teach and something needs to be left behind. The state standards mandate some of these choices. Rome, for instance, has its own set of 12 standards, while the African civilizations are vaguely mixed in as one or two standards within other units. The more that I think about this system, however, the more frustrated my previous decisions make me. Teaching Africa as an interlude to history prevents students from understanding the full context of the story and from grasping Africa's significance within the global community. When we jump in class to Mali, one sees an amazing civilization, one that any student would be happy to time travel back and to visit. But then we abruptly leave it, showing the kids that such a beautiful civilization was possible, but not teaching how it developed to become that makes the story incomplete. When we return to Africa, Mali is absorbed into quote-unquote Africa, a concept that no one on the African continent had at that time. The individual kingdoms lose their identities, in the same way that the modern study of history has stolen Egypt and its rich history from the African continent and instead placed it within the context of the Middle East. When we return, the Europeans are now discovering Africa as they begin to explore the continent. No longer do we talk about the great empires, even though Mali is only a few decades removed from its golden age. The subject is taught so quickly that it is easy for students to fill in some blanks that are left to their imagination. If you had to quickly summarize it, you would probably write, quote, the Europeans are able to easily gain a foothold in Africa and begin to trade slaves. Today's modern understanding of the triangular trade teaches students that the Africans were participants in this trade of human commodities. But it does not take time to explain why. In fact, the search for the answer of why is the reason that I began this journey of historical discovery. After the discovery and subjugation of the African peoples, the teacher then reveals the obvious, that the theft of society's strongest and brightest devastated Africa before administering an exam and then returning back to Egypt to discuss the Reformation, the Enlightenment, and the Scientific Revolution, all done through the eyes of Europeans. Teaching these events in quick succession suggests to the audience that the Europeans were more advanced, more sophisticated, and more capable than their African peers. In fact, that way of thinking suggests that the Africans were not even peers. From there, it's only a quick jump to racist ideas that include celebrated Scotch philosopher David Hume's thought that, quote, I am apt to suggest that Africans and in general all other species of men to be naturally inferior to the whites. There never was any civilized nation of any other complexion than white, nor even any individual eminent in action or speculation, end quote. The coup d'etat against African history comes in one final snapshot return to what is known by many as the Dark Continent, colonization. Today's history teachers are superb at teaching the horrors of colonization, but I'm not sure that we've done enough to lay the groundwork to destroy the original justifications used for colonization. The institution of slavery did untold amounts of damage to the African continent, but American history teachers typically leave Africa when the slavers leave. They shift their focus back to the plight of slaves in America and never properly wrap up what happens to Africa after the whites leave. 
There are good intentions here. Discussing one of our original sins and setting up the Civil War are important parts to the story of America's past. But that past is connected to Africa, and few teachers spare more than a moment or two to discuss what happened after Europe and the Americas ended the slave trade. Spoiler alert for those who have the same gaps in their education that I had, slavery does not end when the whites stopped their participation. Once again, we are presented with an instance of individuals undeservedly patting themselves on the back and believing that the job was done. African states continued the practice of slavery because the entirety of their civilization had been built around it. The carpet was not just pulled out from underneath them, their foundation collapsed. The chaos that ensued from the ending of the transatlantic slave trade on top of the absurd damage that the selective depopulation of their world did, led Europeans to reason that their actions to colonize Africa was a moral act. In this unit, we will attempt to fill in the gaps that traditional American education has produced. I say attempt because the amount of African history that needs to be understood to become an expert on this subject is unreasonable to cover for anyone that does not desire making a career out of this study. I hope that you are intrigued enough to wander with me on a journey to discover some of the history that we have discarded. African history has been left in the dark for too many of us. Truly understanding these events can help put into context so much of what is going on not just in Africa today but in our own backyards. The concept of slavery has been practiced since the dawn of civilization. In fact, ancient summer, the birthplace of civilization itself, was economically dependent upon slavery. Hammurabi's code of laws shows that de jure, or legal slavery, was an early innovation of state power. The ancient Greeks, which represent the beginnings of European civilization, regularly traded in slaves. The Romans and the Egyptians had an affinity for slaves, and both played a major role in the history of the enslavement of the Jewish peoples. While the Eastern Hemisphere did not adopt it as quickly, we know that the Qin Dynasty of China dealt in slaves by 221 BC. Finally, to illustrate our point, the Aztecs instituted slavery for important religious rituals for sacrifice, while the Mayans enslaved those that fell into debt. Civilizations across the continents all independently instituted systems of slavery. It therefore is easier to define the term than to trace its history. The description that needs to be at the forefront of any discussion regarding slavery is social death. Individuals that were compelled into slavery went through a devastating process that resulted in the severing of all social ties to their former lives. They were born anew to a new foreign world. There is a vivid association in Africa between slavery and cannibalism, as individuals taken by the slave trade were devoured and never seen from or heard of again. In Congo, the connection between concepts is quite literal, as Kinkodi represents the words encompassing sorcery and cannibalism. The root of that word, Kinkodi, is the African concept of greed. There was no uniform use for slaves, therefore you cannot define a slave by the tasks or jobs that they performed. While agricultural labor such as was common in the Americas was widespread, other slaves performed a wide variety of jobs that included skilled labor and domestic work. Many civilizations empowered their slaves to roles of soldiers, advisors to kings, and tax collectors. Even if the work was not punitive, the individuals serving these roles were still slaves. Perhaps the best way to understand slavery is to think of it as being comprised as a bundle of traits. 
First, as part of their social death, the slaves were devoid of all kinship ties. Their outsider status meant that they were not socially, morally, or politically a member of the community. The Middle Passage during the transatlantic slave trade served this purpose, but Africans had codified this process even earlier. They would transport a captured individual as far from their home community as they could. Even a short distance can feel disorienting in Africa due to its diverse geography and the existence of thousands of local languages. Slaves arrived at their new owners in a geographically disoriented state, unable to speak or understand the language and devoid of anyone who desired to assist you. The price and value of a slave increased in proportion to the distance from his or her native lands. This travel turned them into absolute outsiders with no rights or social identity. This forced them to turn to the only social ties that existed for them, which was their relationship to their master. Perhaps nothing embodies the position of slaves more than the Swahili proverb that stated, Slaves have no words of their own. The second trait within the bundle is violence. To impart the fact that they were property, violence affected every decision that a slave had to make. The violence began at the beginning of the slave's journey. Slaves were typically produced through systems of violence, typically from war or kidnapping. Acts of cruelty would reinforce their status as property to remind them of the powerlessness of their situation. While slaves were not always beaten, the possibility always existed for it. A chronicler at the time defined the concept of African slavery in the following way, quote, A slave is a man who will do as he is told. If you send him to draw palm wine in the rain, he goes. You call him brother, age mate, put your arm around his neck, give him palm wine and meat so he is happy. He thinks you love him. Then, when your mother's brother dies, you kill him." End quote. It is likely that most slaves knew the possibility of sudden death always loomed on the horizon. Enslaved Roman gladiators took an oath agreeing to be burned, stabbed, and buried at any whim of their master. But the concept of slavery is directly tied to the concept of wealth generation. This is the third bundled trait. That meant that discarding a slave meant that the owner would take an economic loss. That, and not the generosity of the persecutors, was what usually kept those that were enslaved breathing. A slave was only a slave when they could produce income. Failure to work meant that the costs outweighed the benefits, and they were summarily murdered. In Africa and the Americas, slave status was hereditary, meaning you passed your status down to your children. Research strongly indicates that, for this reason, slaves went to great length to not produce children. Their lives and decisions were understandably guided by PTSD and other mental disorders that resulted from the violence inherent to their captivity. It is impossible to know the actual figures, but one suspects that many of the children born into slavery were products of violence in the form of rape by masters, rather than a consensual relationship between two slaves. The dishonor and shame that came with sexualized violence was just part of the daily dehumanization that occurred for those unfortunate enough to become caught in the vortex of violence at the center of the institution of slavery. Slaves were regularly forced to go naked, given insulting nicknames. Instead of being buried upon their death, they were left for wild scavengers. They were branded, ritually humiliated, and treated as animals. Historian Thomas Cooper referred to this as a game where owners would continually test the boundaries of the unwritten terms of servitude by all parties. What was different in the transatlantic era was the introduction of high-density chattel slavery. 
Before the trading of African slaves became a global industry, African tribes regularly practiced low-density forms of slavery. While not rare, this meant that slavery was not a common daily aspect in the lives of most Africans. As we highlighted before, social death was a part of the enslavement process. Cutting the individual off from all systems of familiarity made enslavement seem justifiable to all those involved. Since the slave was an other who had no one else to care for them, a dominant parent-child type relationship was made. He or she was not one of their community, so they could justify some of the mental, physical, and spiritual costs imposed upon them, particularly if the individual had been captured in a war. One might even be able to convince themselves that they deserved this punishment. Xenophobia, or fear of the other, still exists today by feeding off of these same rationalizations. But social death is not the same as physical death. Gradually, through their forced labor and interactions with their new community, slaves would make new social and emotional connections. Resurrections from social death were regular occurrences in Africa, and once they occurred, slaves were typically free to become members of the society in full. This regularly happened by a marriage to a freed member of the society. In that way, African enslavement became a form of purgatory, while the trip across the Atlantic was a one-way ticket to damnation. While at first glance this seems to be an impossible case of Stockholm Syndrome, the group holding the slave was oftentimes far removed from the group that violently enslaved them in the first place. Lost and unable to return home after being physically separated meant that even if you wanted to, you would not be able to return home to your previous life upon obtaining freedom. Chattel slavery is a form of high-density slavery that became common in the era of the transatlantic slave trade. We were not the first to practice it, however, as civilizations such as the Spartans were famous for allowing themselves to be, be outnumbered by their slaves. That's the high-density aspect. Slaves were purchased to increase production. The economic principles behind this justification are sound. Companies grow when they can produce more. Achieving profit allows for reinvestment and expansion of your business, which in turn manifests more profit for you. Labor is one of, if not the key factor in this process. Any business owner will tell you that finding the right people are vital to your business's success. Today, we understand that profit motives drive most human beings, and we therefore can utilize economic incentives to maximize the productivity of our workers. Labor capital costs, however, are one of the largest expenses for a business. That is part of why we see so much automation in today's world. While the upfront cost for AI or physical machines is expensive, you do not have to pay the machines an hourly wage. Whether it is at the Target self-checkout line or an automated toll booth, machines save businesses money over the long run, and they increase productivity. Slavery operated on the exact same business principle, high upfront cost, but besides room and board, no hourly wages. The evidence that exists is crystal clear that African slaves worked harder and were more productive than the typical worker they replaced. Ray Kia's economic analysis found that up until 1550, a slave was able to reproduce his or her market price at about one and a half months of work. This assessment comes from the Gold Coast of Africa and assumes that a slave can produce 48 dambas of gold per day. That means that the profit from owning one slave would pay for his or her master to purchase four or five new slaves over the course of the next year. Slavery, therefore, reproduced itself, both literally and metaphorically. The profits allowed for the acquisition of more labor capital, which in turn fueled business expansion. The acquisition of multiple slaves also occasionally happened to produce babies, who would in turn become future unpaid slave laborers for you. It is possible to look at the rationale for the institution of slavery purely as an economic endeavor, there are even those who have claimed to have identified a new humanoid in Africa during the slave trade era, Homo economicus. 
looking at the practice of slavery through a purely economic lens, allowed for the other aspect that defines chattel slavery in the transatlantic era. Chattel means that slaves were viewed as something less than human. Typically, this is represented in the perspective that they are property. The other major divergence that occurs once the Americas get involved in slavery is its racialization. Throughout history, empires could care less which race their slaves belonged to. The Greeks and other civilizations were happy to enslave their own until economic debts were paid off. As we have already hinted at, the different kingdoms of Africa gathered slaves from other tribes. Please understand that we are going to run through some terms loosely when we're talking about Africa's people. Ethnicity is a relatively newer concept that was not indigenous to the continent of Africa. In fact, it was imposed upon the Africans by Europeans during colonialization. Africans dealt in kinship rather than in ethnicity. The difference is that I can switch and become a part of their kinship community, it is impossible, however, to switch one's ethnicity. Our way of understanding differences, as well as a belief in permanency, are not native to Africa. While there are formal states that develop in Africa, they oftentimes did not view themselves as constrained by physical borders like European states. Once the transatlantic trade begins, the concept of slavery begins to become conflated racially with black. This conflation begins an era of racist justifications for the enslavement of the entire race. It makes them the sacrificial lamb on the altar to the economic gods. It also results in more dehumanization. Before the racialization, anyone was at risk of becoming enslaved. A few bad business decisions could find you enslaved for your debts. If your side lost the battle, you as a soldier as well as the wife and children you were protecting could find yourself shackled and meeting your new master. Everyone could imagine a slightly different version of their reality, where they were in the shoes of their captives. Once it becomes racial in nature, however, everyone that is born white was secure in the fact that no matter what, they will not ever have to be in an African's shoes. They never had to imagine it. That lack of sympathy allowed some of the worst violence to occur, unchecked by one's own conscience. For metaphor purposes only, if slavery was a video game, then the transatlantic slave trade was the ultimate villain at the end. Remember that while there is not an exact definition, we return to our understanding that slavery is a bundle of traits. The slave trade in the Americas transported the victim to a land across an ocean, a land where the only individuals that you saw that looked like you were also enslaved. Among your fellow slaves, there was no common language, religion, or chance to return home. The food, clothes, and climate were all radically different. Within the racialized ideas of chattel slavery, being shipped to the New World was more than just social death. It was a fate worse than death. It was a prison sentence with no chance of an early release. During the Middle Passage, there is among the most horrifying experiences throughout all human existence. Violence was continuous. English surgeon Alexander Falconbridge wrote in the 1780s about the River Bonny, a portion of the Niger Delta, which served as a major slave trading zone during the 18th century. Falconbridge tells us that the water abounds with sharks of very large size, which are often seen in almost incredible numbers about the slave ships devouring with great dispatch the dead bodies of the Africans as they are thrown overboard. 
as horrific as the Middle Passage was, its story neglects the violence that occurred before the indentured ever reached the slave ships. We will examine the Middle Passage and the lives of slaves in the New World in more detail later on. For now, let's dive deeper into Africa's internal involvement with slavery. Theirs was a business that they turned into a successful multinational corporation well before the Europeans globalized it. The foundations for the emergence of African slavery were laid somewhere between 10,000 BCE and the year 500 AD. Why so large of a gap in our estimation? The lack of written records is part of the reason. The size, geographical, and cultural differences inherent to the continent also contribute. During this period, the dual revolutions of agriculture and iron cause Africa to experience massive technological, economic, and political changes. Sean Stilwell is an associate professor of African history at the University of Vermont, and his book titled Slavery and Slaving in African History serves as our main resource for this episode. Professor Stilwell explains nation-building in Africa through the concept of the African big men. These were individuals that were able to gain enough resources that they were able to exert substantial influence over others. Throughout the work, Stilwell does not automatically equate the term big men with a negative connotation, even though there are plenty of examples of big men that equate to the modern-day connections of corruption and dictatorship. The process of state-building was fundamentally different in Africa because the conceptualization of the value of land was different. How valuable land is can be dramatically skewed by where you live. Someone from the middle class living in Chicago could not imagine having two or three acres for their yard, while someone from Wyoming would likely scoff at how little land the 40 acres that were offered during Reconstruction were. Africa has always had a low population density. J.D. Duran estimates that in 1750, the population density per square kilometer in Africa ranged between 2.3 and 5.8% across the continent. Compare that to the 23 to 27 person per square kilometer living in Europe at the same time. Land was never difficult to find in Africa. It was challenging to make it productive, however. Anyone who grows up in Indiana, as I did, knows that you must rotate your crops. This typically means leaving a field fallow, or empty, for one cycle. This rest allows the nutrients to be stored in the ground and sets the stage for the next productive planting. I was not surprised to hear that early African civilizations left their fields fallow. I was flabbergasted, however, to find out that the majority of African fields had to be left fallow for 10 years with some farms in the forest zones requiring 25 years for successful restoration of their soil. Before the consolidation of states, it was typical for local African households to be self-sufficient in food production. This ensured that they were relatively economically autonomous and held their fate in their own hands. Since everyone had access to plenty of land, few starved in this system as long as they worked. The production of the food in Africa, however, is among the hardest work on the planet. This meant that there were economic incentives to create large families so that your kids could eventually handle the production of food and allow you to branch out your economic interests. Subsistence farming keeps you alive, but does not generate profit. This is because your labor is tied up in continuous food production. Capitalists view subsistence farming as just spinning your wheels and going nowhere. If everyone is living at a subsistence level, it's hard to establish job specialization. I, for instance, specialize as a teacher. If I were worried about food production rather than food purchasing, I would have little time to take on specialized projects like this podcast for my students. Full-time government officials specialize in running the government. Each hour that they spend on food production is time taken away from governing. The ruling class's bureaucracy, full-time soldiers, artisans, gurwees, and traders cannot focus on their craft without the establishment of a surplus of food. Thus, the mobilization of labor, in this case through slavery rather than an increase in agricultural techniques or technology, was instrumental in the forming of a permanent African leadership caste. 
Joseph Miller describes African state building as a process of aggregating human dependence. Quote, in many parts of Africa, Miller writes, populations suffered from high mortality rates and were subject to crop failures and fluctuations among other uncertainties. So the key was to acquire not just control over dependence directly, but to place claims on the future labor of as many people as possible by making claims on their descendants, which in turn created an African reproductive economy, end quote. In other words, the first step to harvest the surplus food needed for job specialization and state consolidation or creation was to secure a labor force. Europeans did this through the feudal system. The king, given his place by God through the belief in the divine right of kings, owned all of the land and passed down control to his lords, who in turn let the remaining 75% of the population live peasantry lives of poverty. While serfs could work one or two days a week on their own land, the debts that they incurred essentially made them slaves in the manorial system. Since military service was a part of the serf's feudal contract, the lords gained all the benefits of their serf's labor, with minimal costs or responsibilities falling upon the state's resources. This system never made it to Africa, in part because of how they viewed land, and secondly, because there was no equivalent African understanding of the divine right of kings. African big men were not chosen by God. They earned their place by accumulating power. John Locke's social contract imagines the state of nature in the same way that typical high school students imagine pre-colonial Africa. It describes the state of nature as a brutish world, where individuals that were bigger and stronger took whatever they want from anyone that they could push around. Locke then supposes that individuals band together to empower a state, whose number one job is to ensure security for its citizens, meaning that we give away some rights and money in the form of taxes in exchange for security. Big men's legitimacy derived from the security and privilege that they provided to their citizens, as Locke suggests. But African state building flips the formation of the state on its head. Instead of the insecure individuals choosing to band together to face those that are more powerful, in Africa, the powerful force the insecure to come under their control of their security apparatus. The difference was choice. It is this logic that allowed Patrick Chobble and Jean-Pascal Deleuze to conclude that, quote, the notion of African politicians, bureaucrats, or military chiefs should be servants of the state does not make sense. Their political obligations are, first and foremost, to their kin, their clients, their communities, their region, or even to their religion. All such patrons seek ideally to constitute themselves as big men, controlling as many networks as they can. We are thus led to conclude that in most African countries, the state is no more than a decor, a pseudo-Western facade masking the realities of deeply personalized political realities. End quote. Far from a Lockean social contract, the government of big men were never going to stop at the liberty and money that you sacrificed to them for protection. They were always going to desire and take more. Slavery was the best way for big men to claim the value produced by the labor of people as well as to secure control over future labor through the hereditary nature of chattel slavery. Since slaves were more productive than workers, and because big men wanted to empower and enrich their family members, slavery replaced free labor. Early African states even viewed slavery through a family concept. The Bobagandi described the relations between the slaves and their masters by asserting, quote, If I buy a slave, I am his father, I am his mother. Since land itself was not valuable, big men monopolized labor in order to increase the production of goods that came from the land. In some ways, the surplus of available land made people that you could control more valuable. Slaves offered other advantages for big men, 
They fulfilled religious purposes, including the need for human sacrifices in some regions of the continent. Entourages of slaves lent prestige and a sense of wealth and power. In hard times, such as during food shortages, slaves could be sold to earn enough to feed your own family. Stillwell provides us with a depressing account of what happened during hard times when you did not own slaves. He writes the quote, During times of famine, if a father wanted to sell a child in order to buy food, he would first scatter a little millet on the ground and tell his children to gather it up. He would then tell the slave merchant, with whom he had already negotiated a price, to choose the one he wanted. The victim would then be tied up and taken away. In this way, children were sold just like chickens. With the proceeds gained, food could be purchased to sustain the family. End quote. This was not the main way the slaves were acquired. War presented the most opportunities. The lack of clearly defined borders, peoples, and states made violent outbreaks common in Africa. Individuals had to decide what to do with the captives of war. There were three options available, kill, absorb, or exploit. Since control of labor created wealth and power, the exploitation of prisoners was the most frequent preference. The implementation of high-density slaving consolidated labor for the state and served to underwrite the large economic growth period in Africa between the years 1000 and 1900. It was during this time that slavery became a fundamental part of the political economy of African statehood. Slavery not only served to build the state, it safeguarded its survival. While serfs served a military role in the European Middle Ages, they were ineffective in the militarized age of chivalry. This was because knights were professionalized soldiers whose entire life was devoted to learning the trade of dealing death. Before the advent of professionalized African armies, free soldiers that were called into duty were only part-time soldiers. In fact, their main jobs were likely as free farmers and craftsmen. Their service time, experience, and capability as soldiers were all limited. As a result, slave soldiers often composed the core of the professionalized fighting forces of African big men. Their loyalty was tied directly to that survival of an African ruler. This is similar to the way that North Korea's Kim dynasty maintains control of their soldiers despite clear evidence against their competence to lead. While half of the North Korean people are starving, the military remains steadfastly loyal because they are funneled all the food and privilege that they need to live decent lives. Slave soldiers were well fed, cared for, and rarely punished by their masters. If they stepped out of line, they would be entitled to a second wave of social death and violence, as they still had resale value to the owner. Thus, slavery became economically essential to Africa in two major ways, the growth of states and the growth of the governing political elites. Slave production sustained the elite and made the rule of big men possible because of how vital it was to the economy, the royal court, the palace bureaucracy, and the military. Over time, the benefits from the use of slaves trickled down to the non-elite's households. This happened as slaves became more common and supply systems of slaves were institutionalized. Later, the Europeans would exhaust these supply routes in their endless craving for slaves. The economic exploitation of these workers allowed all African owners to enrich themselves without challenging the status quo. Stillwell reminds us that, quote, it is commonly said that power in African societies comes from people, but that power is also then directed at people. Now that we have looked at slavery on the continent, it's time to shift the expansion of the trade beyond Africa's borders. Another one of those fundamental misunderstandings the students get from their limited study of African history is the sudden discovery of Africa. 
On face value, the thought that neighboring civilizations in the Middle East and the Mediterranean did not know about Africa is absurd. Throughout the teaching of history, there is constant contact between these regions. A cursory teaching of Egypt involves the enslavement of Middle Eastern Jews as well as invasions from the Hittites and Julius Caesar's armies conquering and crowning Cleopatra. While it's not customary for commoners to travel to different regions, it is wrong to imply that no one did. I take great pleasure in revealing how Romans left this earth believing that they had seen unicorns slaughtered in the Colosseum. The Romans achieved this trick by taking antelopes, an animal that typical citizens knew nothing about, and forcing their straight horns to grow into one curved horn by tying them together while they're young. These were not the only animals that Rome imported. It was the Romans that hunted the Saharan elephants to extinction. It takes a great deal of delusion to imagine that they could successfully hunt leopards, lions, and zebra without ever encountering a native African. It is likewise silly to think that the Egyptians did not have knowledge of their continental neighbors to pass on to their European and Middle Eastern conquerors. In fact, Egypt was itself conquered by the Nubian kingdom from modern-day Sudan. This led to an era of black pharaohs. The Nubian civilization even built 223 pyramids in their own lands. Today, the Red Sea contains a man-made canal for ships to pass through, but before this, the land was easily crossed from the Middle East. Likewise, the Strait of Gibraltar is only 8 miles wide at one point, separating Spain from Morocco. The closeness of the crossing is one of the reasons that the Moors were able to control the Iberian Peninsula in Europe for 800 years. That ended with the consolidation of Catholic Spain under Ferdinand and Isabella. The Moors' retreat from Europe only occurred six years prior to Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama traveling around the southern tip of Africa before docking in India. As you hear all of this, you should be thinking to yourself, why is he stating the obvious? Our snapshot images of Africa can create a distorted history of Africa. We look at the rise of these major African civilizations without providing any global context. While Alexander the Great and Caesar conquered territories on different continents, the African kingdoms stayed within their own boundaries. When students return to Africa, these civilizations have disappeared only to be replaced with a conquest of Africa that closely resembles our own knowledge of the European so-called discovery of the Americas. We further conflate the destruction from the Native American people with the enslavement of Africans when we teach that Christopher Columbus's first thoughts were that the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean would make excellent slaves because of their docile dispositions. Unfortunately for Africans, the natives died at far greater rates of European diseases, thus resulting in the need for the importation of slaves from Africa to replace them. We inherently know that the slave trade is destructive, but in our haste to make connections between the past and the present, we focus on those harms to help explain why, in conjunction with imperialism and colonialism, that America has so many challenges today. Likewise, since we are talking to American students, we focus on the transatlantic slave trade while ignoring the trans-Saharan slave trade completely. To tell the full story of Africa's experience with slavery, we must discuss the entire story. Doing so also reveals that far from being a victim of globalization, Africa was a driver of it. Perhaps no story exemplifies this more than the tale of Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa was a particularly famous ruler of the Kingdom of Mali. Mali is located on what would become known as the Gold Coast of West Africa. Like Genghis Khan, Mansa is the local term for ruler rather than a first name. Musa was not supposed to become a Mansa, let alone the world's first test of whether there was a global economy. 
The previous ruler, Abu Bakr II, was convinced that the ocean off of Africa's west coast was not limitless. Indeed, he was 100% convinced that there was land on the other side of the Atlantic. He sent an expedition of 400 ships, which represented an insane amount of vessels in the 1300s. This fleet was equipped with enough gold, water, and provisions to last them for years. However, only one ship returned from the voyage, and it returned with quite the story. The captain claimed that they had traveled for a long time until there appeared a river with a powerful current in the midst of the ocean. All of the other ships went on ahead, but after they disappeared over the horizon, they were never heard from again. Abu Bakr, the current Mansa, was enthralled and confident in his own power. He promptly ordered a second expedition. This time he directed the construction of 2,000 ships, 1,000 for his men and another 1,000 for the provisions that they would need. This was an armada that did not exist anywhere else in the world at this time. Abu Bakr II opted to lead the expedition himself. As was custom for the Mali Empire, the Mansa had to name a replacement to rule in his stead during the expedition. That man was Mansa Musa. His first order of business was to improve the international trade that was one source of Mali's wealth, the other of which was gold, sometimes by sword and spear and other times by paying them off he successfully cleared the trade routes of all brigands and obstacles. He also secured access to nearby salt mines, which gave him control over the two most important goods from the 13th and 14th century. This gave Mali a triple income. First, taxes on trade. Secondly, goods were bought and sold to others at much higher prices as Mali served as the intermediary along its trade routes. And third, Mali had the largest accessible gold mines in the world. In the 14th century, Musa took control of copper mines, which were the most valued resources to the kingdoms to his south. His ability to tax gold, salt, and copper made him the richest man in the world. That is a literal title rather than a metaphorical one. Mansa Musa remains to this day the wealthiest man to have ever existed. Contemporary scholars believe that his wealth totaled $400 billion in total. For comparison's sake, Jeff Bezos, the richest man in 2020 and founder of Amazon, is worth a paltry $131 billion. In fact, you would have to add up all of the wealth from the four richest men in the U.S., Jeff Bezos, Microsoft creator Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg to come close to the individual wealth possessed by Musa. As a public school teacher, I have not yet hit this point in my life, but I assume there is a point at which you have so much money that you literally do not need anymore. To paraphrase the notorious B.I.G., there must be a point where mo money just equals mo problems. As the richest man in the world, Mansa Musa began to spend it. Besides creating a professionalized army, beautifying his cities, and creating an elaborate bureaucracy to ensure that taxes were efficiently collected, Musa sought to evangelize his faith. A devout Muslim, Mansa Musa, supposedly funded the construction of a new mosque in his kingdom every single Friday for the entirety of his 25-year reign. If this figure is in any way accurate, it means that Mansa Musa was personally responsible for the construction of 1,300 mosques. His devout faith and his policy of a mosque on every corner threatened the economic structure that his rule was supported by, however. After attempting to force the conversion of his people, a protest strike in the gold mines formed and spread to shut down the entire industry. Prioritizing his people and his economy over his faith, he settled the strike by allowing citizens of Mali to continue to worship whichever deity they deemed worthy. 
around the year 1323, his 11th year awaiting the return of Abu Bakr. He decided to introduce himself and his nation to the world. He began to plan a hajjah, which is the Muslim religious requirement to visit the holy sites of Mecca in modern-day Saudi Arabia. This pilgrimage would be one for the ages, as Mansa Musa was determined to make his mark in the land of his faith. To reach the Holy Land, Mansa would have to travel his own well-worn trade routes across the Saharan Desert. They stopped at Cairo in Egypt before crossing into the Middle East and turning south to arrive in Mecca. In all, the journey was more than 4,000 miles. As a responsible ruler, Musa stopped and checked on his cities and mines as he went so that the wealth would continue to flow during his absence. And he needed it to persist because he was about to make a journey that would make him the most famous man in the Middle East. Accompanying Musa was his wife and her 500 servants, but that entourage was nothing in comparison to the 12,000 servants of his own, 500 of whom whose only job was to carry golden staffs and walk in front of him. All servants carried four pounds of gold bars with them. That's nearly 46,000 pounds of gold. 8,000 soldiers guarded the caravan, and another 47,000 Malians came along to make their own hajjah. Finally, 80 to 100 camels were each loaded with 300 pounds of gold dust, the preferred form of currency in the empire. All told, Musa traveled with more than $1 billion worth of gold. Musa ordered a mosque built and left enough gold to see it done in every single town he passed through. The first bit of trouble for this traveling army came in Cairo. There, the Egyptian sultan insisted that Musa supplicant himself before the pharaoh in order to pass through. Knowing full well that he was both richer and more powerful than the Egyptian ruler, Musa agreed to end the standoff by instead bowing to Allah while in the presence of the pharaoh. They stayed in Cairo for resting and refueling for three months, and it is here that the tale of Mansa Musa's pilgrimage exposes the existence of a global economic system. His men spent and gave away so much gold that the currency became devalued worldwide due to oversupply. He literally ordered gold coins to be thrown like parade candy when crowds came out to see his procession. Most southern European royal crowns still display the unique white coloring of the Malian gold that they obtained during this time. Once reaching Mecca, Musa secured promises from the world's greatest scholars and religious theologians to visit his West African kingdom. Shortly after arriving in Mecca, though, he received word that there was an open rebellion in one of his eastern provinces. He decided to rush home, but due to his generosity, they were already out of the billion dollars worth of gold that they had brought with them. This forced him to take out loans in Cairo to finance the rest of the return trip home. The act of taking out such a large loan with the interest that went on top of it re-established the world's gold markets, undoing the damage that he had unwittingly done when he had passed through the first time. When he finally returned home, he was pleased to be informed that his generals had successfully put down the rebellion and taken over the infamous trading city of Timbuktu in the process. The second item that he saw to was the repayment of his loan, which he did in one payment, eradicating all interest that was due on the loan. The size of this repayment once again sent the world market for gold into a deep depression. It took a full decade for gold prices to recover in Egypt. This remains the only example in world history where the spending of one individual affected the price of a currency. Once again debt-free, 
Musa began putting to work all the scholars and architects that he had brought home with him from the Hajjah. This resulted in massive public work projects and infrastructure improvements and the building of the Library of Timbuktu, a building that housed more than one million books. Those that claim Africa has no history because of its oral tradition tend to ignore the contributions that Mali made towards our understanding of African history. Musa himself sat for and provided first-hand knowledge for several books about his own life. The university that he funded had 25,000 students at its height. West Africa had become the center of culture and scholarship in the world. We recount the tale of Mansa Musa to finally put to bed some of the stereotypes regarding Africa. The world clearly knew about the people and empires of Africa. They were intimately interconnected through trade. They also were not backwards savages. Instead, they were at the forefront of culture, religion, and learning. They were not poor. In fact, their wealth was so extensive that it sent shockwaves through the world economy. Musa set difficult standards for any ruler to live up to regarding the fighting of corruption. Africans were not waiting around to be discovered. They were sending the most impressive fleets that the world had ever known to explore the world. It also shows how extensive the trade routes were between the Islamic Middle East and the Muslims of the western side of Africa. We have already looked at the internal trade of slaves in Africa. It makes sense that some of this trade would follow those established paths. This is what is known as the Trans-Saharan Slave Trade. Islam has an interesting relationship with slavery. The Quran and the Hadith both clearly outlaw the enslavement of Muslims. However, they also make clear that it is acceptable for Muslims to enslave individuals of other faiths. To their credit, while slavery of others is tolerated, both books encourage the freeing of all slaves. The export of African slaves to the Middle East was vast. Likely 6 million persons were trafficked along this route between the years 800 and 1900. A further 4 million were sold in the Middle East and Indian markets via the Red Sea and Indian Ocean trade routes. That is 10 million persons that were forcibly removed from the African continent who would labor and develop the economies of other peoples. How does that number compare to those that were sent to the New World? The Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, which keeps track of slave ship voyages, estimates that between 1492 and 1866, 12,521,000 persons crossed the Atlantic Ocean destined for a life of captivity. The Trans-Saharan trade predates the African trade by more than 1,500 years. Herodotus, the Greek father of history, discusses the slave trade during the 5th century BC. The ancient Romans had established slave markets in North Africa. The trade increased with the expansion of Carthage, whose status as a terminal for the slave trade contributed to the wealth that Hannibal needed to lead an elephant army to invade Europe. Instead of being forcibly stuffed in the cargo holds of European ships, slaves were transported across the Saharan desert via camels. While the means were different, both resulted in African social death. One individual in the 18th century describes the lingering effects of this trade on the modern population, saying that, quote, by the 1770s, slave stealers were operating by kidnapping children during the night. They would sell them to some peasant who sells them to a third, and so from hand to hand, two by two, they are carried out of the country. It is not surprising that the Halsa disliked camels, for they are the beasts that carry us to slavery. What are the lasting takeaways? African history is vast and incredibly interesting. The continent is not what you've been led to believe, and studying the subject of slavery and the role that the Africans played 
helps us to understand what happened to the birthplace of civilization. To understand the story, one must remove the preconceptions that the European way of state building and social contracts are the only way to do something. Mansa Musa proved what Africa was capable of, and we should remember that the potential remains to this very day. Finally, the slave trade existed before, without, and after the Europeans' involvement. Next episode, we'll examine the African slave trade in depth, examining the effect that the slave trade had on the rise and fall of West African nations. Thank you.